With Thanksgiving coming up, a lot of us are getting ready to spend time with our immediate and extended family. And while most people only deal with the prying questions and awkward conversations for a few hours once or twice a year, some endure it every day. How do they do it? Laughter and wine. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. This week, we're exploring the daily ins and outs of multi-generational families, their homes, and their businesses. Our first guest joins me on the phone. His name is John Graham. John is the co-author of the book, All in the Family, a practical guide to successful multi-generational living. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, happy to do it. Happy to talk with you. So how do you define a multi-generational family? Well, it's more than uh, adults from uh, two generations at least. I mean, we see three generations and four generations, but if you've got an adult kid living in your house, then you would qualify, at least according to the census, as a multi-generational household. How prominent are multi-generational households in today's day and age? Again, if you go back to the census numbers, um, about... One-fifth, or about 20% of Americans, are, are living in multi-generational households. And that really undercounts the phenomenon. And so a most recent Pew report says that uh, there's uh, 60.6 million Americans living in multi-generational households. But if you can include the other examples where people are living across the street from one another or next door or in a, the same apartment building, it's probably more like 70 million. Now, are we seeing an increase in multi-generational families? You bet. This peer report I mentioned uh, has been really tracking it nicely. And uh, in 2000, there, there were 42 million Americans. In 2009, there were 52 million Americans. And now there's uh, about 61 million Americans living together. So how would that compare to, say, 10 or even 20 years ago? Well, if I go back, the closest to that is, that I can get to in the numbers I have in front of me uh, would be 2,000. And uh, that was the 42 million Americans living in multi-generational households. So why then, John, are people moving back together? A lot of people say it's because of the bad economy in 2008. I actually disagree with that explanation. Uh, This cultural shift was easy to see coming uh, even 20 years ago. But uh, the main reason is we had about a 50-year experiment with what we call the nuclear family, and that experiment really hasn't worked. And what we're learning now is that uh, we need to get back into the situation of interdependence with the extended family. So that includes grandparents uh, living near or with grandkids, things like that. But uh, it's the natural way people live all around the world except in the United States and some northern European countries. And it's the way we lived in this country until about 50 years ago. What happened 50 years ago that created that shift at that time? Well, the big thing, I mean, it was a combination of the Depression, or let me say farm mechanization, which caused the Depression. But uh, a lot of the farm kids moved off the farm, and they had to move to cities. And uh, that happened in the 30s and 40s. And you throw in World War II, where you have so many young people moving uh, to the coast and things like that as part of the war, and that really uh, uh, changed things. And we're just now seeing the downside of those kinds of changes when extended families are living uh, far apart. You mentioned that multi-generational families are more common elsewhere in the world. That being said, here in the United States, is multi-generational living more common among certain ethnicities? Uh, It is. 
and again, I'll refer back to the Pew report. They have a, some nice information. So they compare Asians, blacks, Hispanics, and whites, and uh, about 15% of whites are living in uh, multi-generational households. Among Asians, it's 28%, blacks 25%, and Hispanics 25%. So Anglo groups are a little bit behind the curve, but they're headed uh, in the same direction pretty quickly. Is there any evidence to suggest that people who live in multi-generational families are happier? Well, that's what we found in our work, uh, preparing for the book. My sister interviewed 100 people living in multi-generational households, and um, I talked to people living in other countries in multi-generational households. And the argument is that if the alternative for a lot of grandparents, or elderly women in particular, is that they're living alone. And lonely isn't happier. Happier is if you've got family around. I mean, obviously, it doesn't work for everybody. But for me, the most significant statistic in this whole thing is to consider uh, the plight of elderly widows since 1940. In 1940, 18% of elderly widows lived alone. And that number grew steadily to 2,000, and it got up to 68%, so from 18 to 68%. And that means a lot of loneliness. The good news is in 2010, that number dropped for the first time in the last 50 years to 63%. So more elderly widows are living with their adult children, and I think that's a good thing for everybody. When I think about how multi-generational families are portrayed in popular culture, I think of the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding and the challenges that are often presented about living with all of your family under one roof. Yeah, that's a classic. There are challenges, and actually what our book about is how to get by some of those. You know, we have chapters on negotiating uh, different issues like television watching or who's paying the rent or who's paying, you know, doing the chores. There are also... You talked about culture, cultural stigmas, uh, particularly for Anglo-Americans that, you know, I don't want to be dependent upon my kids or I don't want to be dependent upon my parents. The fact is there's no such thing as independence. I mean, we're all, we all depend on one another, and that's the way families have always worked. And we're getting, beginning to recognize that. You know, it is, you lose privacy when you're living with a lot of folks, but you also uh, win on the companionship thing. And there's some things you can do in setting up the household uh, uh, minimizes the privacy concerns but maximizes the other uh, benefits of living together. Such as what? Well, the two key we find are separate kitchen and separate entrance. And, uh, you know, the heart of the house is the kitchen. That's where people cross paths and leave dishes on the counter and things like that. And so it's really important to have good house rules on how the kitchen is managed or even better have uh, separate kitchens, maybe uh, the grandparents and even a separate unit out in the backyard if you're out in uh, the Midwest or something. Those considerations can be really important. The builders have been responding to this change, by the way, and on our website, which I'll recommend, uh, we have a couple of different videos. One talks about KB homes, and they've been building homes with granny flats, um, but they haven't they have tended not to include separate kitchens and separate entrances. And Lennar is another builder that has done that very nicely. And uh, there are really big advantages when it comes to uh, the privacy issue of separate kitchens and uh, separate entrances. So, John, what's the best way to divvy up the bills when you're living with all of your family? Well, 
the best way to solve all these problems is to get to some get away from the house and go maybe to a restaurant or a picnic table or a church or whatever, get to a neutral uh, location. Uh, it helps ignore the old parent-kid relationships that can persist. And basically talk about, okay, we're all going to be living together. Who's going to contribute what? And uh, in a sense, it's, it represents a trade of services. So, And this changes over time, of course. In the beginning, the grandparents might help with the little kids, but ultimately the, when those little kids are teenagers, they may help with the grandparents because the grandparents are going to need more help. But it basically should be a negotiation about the trading of services and expenses. One of the things that's happening, I told my kids about, I don't know, when we first started working on, the, uh, on this topic uh, 15 years ago, that uh, I'd probably be living with them when I became decrepit. I'm a baby boomer. Hmm. I told them, well, so I'm going to move in with one of you guys when uh, I need a lot of help. And, of course, they said to me, well, that's fine, Dad, uh, but what are you going to do for us now? And so there's some transfer of resources across generations, recognizing this long-term extended family relationship. Did you yourself grow up in a multi-generational family? I did not. Um, the sad thing is my mother's parents had both died at a young age, and my grandparents were in Nebraska, and we were out in California. So I, my parents did do a good job of getting rid of me each summer and sending me back to Nebraska to uh, hang around the farm, literally. I think that that was to their benefit. That probably quieted the house down some. So I spent a lot of years with my grandparents and aunts and uncles, but uh, not living in the same place. And that's too bad. That said, John, what inspired your interest in this topic? What really got us started, well, I was asked to write an article about what the year 2020 would be like by my dean at the business school. And uh, so the first thing I did was look at demographics. And when you look at the demographics, it's really obvious that the baby boomers um, would be causing problems now. And we caused problems when we were five because there weren't enough bicycles. And when we were 18, there weren't enough colleges. And, and when we were 30, there weren't enough houses. And when we were 50, there weren't enough stocks. And now there's not enough left in our pensions, and, and we don't have enough doctors and health care facilities to take care of baby boomers. That's really uh, the first thinking about it. Then my sister, Sharon, did a master's thesis at Stanford in 2003, and she was looking at the importance of accessory apartments. And so Sharon Graham Niederhaus and I got together and worked on the book based on her uh, master's thesis on accessory apartments and some of my work about consumer behavior and culture. The other thing that was instrumental is we had a brother that died uh, a little bit before that. He died in 1995, and, and my parents had already died. So uh, he was lucky to have four siblings, uh, two brothers and two sisters, and the four of us uh, you know, helped him during his illness. You have a number of stories in your book about multi-generational living. Any in particular stand out for you? Well, I guess I can think of two. Uh, one is this privacy versus proximity issue. There was a, an elderly uh, grandmother that moved in with her family, with her kids, her daughter and uh, son-in-law and their granddaughter. And initially, um, there, there was some conflict, but they lived in a place where they could build... Uh, separate uh, accessory apartment out in the backyard, and so they did that, and once they had the separate kitchen and the separate entrance, uh, that kind of resolved all the conflicts. The nice thing that they set up, though, which is, was a house rule or the software of, of this, was they had the granddaughter go out and deliver the mail every day to the grandmother, 
And what that did was gave a specific time when the granddaughter could talk to the grandmother and, and uh, they could do some bonding. It also helped to make sure that uh, Granny was still uh, doing okay physically. But my favorite story is a flat, uh, multi-generational family uh, shared two flats in Chicago. And uh, the, this was a fellow that came up after our interviews. I, I was talking about this at a, uh, at a uh, uh, function and he came up and said, "Yeah, um, I lived with, uh, or my wife and I lived with our son and daughter and two grandkids living in the flat below ours, and we used to have dinner every night together, and uh, those were the happiest days of our lives." Yeah, I mean, there's no question about that. When I was growing up, my great grandparents and my grandparents lived in the same house. Of course, my mom grew up in that house as well, and it really created for some of my fondest memories. Yeah, and so that, and the main point of the book and everything is that's the way humans have always lived. Um, we've lived in extended family groups that help each other out, and we're beginning to recognize that, uh, and it's re- reflected in these statistics. Uh, the economists, by the way, miss all this. When they do their economics analysis, they almost always ignore demographics. But, uh, you know, you, it's really clear now uh, if you look at the demographics. Well, the book is All in the Family, A Practical Guide to Successful Multi-Generational Living. John, thanks so much for your time. George, thank you very much for taking an interest in this. John Graham is the co-author of the book All in the Family, A Practical Guide to Successful Multi-Generational Living. It's published by Taylor Trade Publishing. So now that we know more about multi-generational families, let's meet one. The Pachulo family are the owners of Tino's Deli on the Bronx's historic Arthur Avenue. I sat down with the family's eldest daughter, Monica, to talk about running a family business. So what's the story behind Tino's? How long have your parents owned Tino's? My parents owned Tino's for close to 20 years. Um, they purchased it from the, the original owner. It used to be on 187th Street and got really, really busy, and we moved it uh, here at Arthur Avenue. Uh, but my parents owned a wine shop before they owned Tino's, so they used to shop at Tino's. The wine shop also in the Belmont neighborhood of the Bronx? Yes, on 187th Street, Our Lady of Macarma Wines and Liquors. Uh, they owned that for 20 years. That's where I was raised. So, but they owned that, and then they decided to sell it and move back to Italy. They went for about three months, decided it wasn't for them, and came back and purchased Tino's. So how old were you when your parents purchased Tino's? Yeah. Oh. oh, my gosh. I'm 40 now, so about 20, 20, 21. Uh, but I had my own place uh, right next, a couple of stores away from Tino's. I had um, a gift shop, and I sold Italian CDs, T-shirts, Italian pottery. So, but then T- Tino's got too busy, and we sold it, and now I work for them. So, yeah, I was going to ask the question: How then did you get involved in the family business? Well, I was born in family business, so pretty much don't have a choice. Um, but I did go to school for teaching, and although I love teaching, I, I really enjoy working with my family. So, who besides you and the family is now working at Tino's? Oh. I have a, uh, a sister and a brother, both work at Tino's. My sister uh, is the cashier, and my brother makes pizza and whatever else we need him to do. And uh, we're all, uh, my brother's 20 years younger, and my sister is 10 years younger. So, you know, they were all raised in family business. So never a question for them. They would be involved in the family business? Never a question. 
Um, although we were given the opportunity to do whatever we like, it's just that we're so used to being in this neighborhood, talking to people, um, just uh, helping out that it's it's like a natural natural thing to do. Work here. <laughs> so, what's it like to work every day with your siblings here at Tino's? It's great. Um, I, you know, you always hear families fighting and things like that. We, we just, we get along. It, it's, it's great working with your parents. I have a, um, a 12-year-old daughter, so, you know, when she's sick or whatever, I can come and go easily, so it's not, you know, I can't, I can't get fired. <laughs> and it's wonderful, and, and you get to spend a lot of time with your family, which is nice. How much are your parents involved with Tino still? They're very involved, very involved. Um, they're here every day. They're here more than than we are, really, and they still live in the neighborhood, so it's easy for them to, to come to work in the morning. Um, but they're going to be here for a, a long time, you know. They're, they're pretty young, so it's, they're not retiring soon, although they tried once, but it's just not for them. They just love to, to be around people and work. They're so used to it. So. Now, Tino's is all about food. I would imagine food is a huge part of your family, not just here at the business, but also just a part of your life. Yeah, food has always been a part of our life. Just being part, uh, Italian, you know, my every Sunday morning was a big to-do, you know, and even if you come here on Sundays, you will see that we have our family dinners here, and, and it's always pasta on Sunday and some kind of meat or something, but it's it's a big celebration every week so um i just had this conversation with my daughter we were talking about thanksgiving like thanksgiving is is a big celebration of family we have thanksgiving every sunday so so you have your sunday meals with the family here at tino's is the restaurant closed for that no no we uh customers can see us eat and uh they sometimes ask us what's this what's that on our plates because uh they're just very interested in what my mom uh makes and and uh it's you know sometimes we invite some of our customers to sit with us uh but it's always every sunday here what can you tell me about the camaraderie that's shared here among your family on a day-to-day we treat everyone like family um my father re- welcomes everyone. Uh, everyone who comes here feels welcome. Our employees are, are the same people that have been working here for a long time. Um, it's just like a, it's a true family place. What are among your fondest memories of working with your family at Tino's? You know what? It's not... We have a lot of good memories here, but the memories I have, all the crazy things that happen at Tino's with my family, uh, just like interesting people who come in and give us sometimes a, a hard time or great compliments, the way my <laughs> uh, my mom comes up with certain recipes and or messes up certain recipes. Uh, my dad, every new cheese comes in here, has to come and, and have me taste it and tell me the story behind it. Those are the memories that I have, my fondest memories. It's just crazy. It's like if I go somewhere else, I don't want to try cheeses and things like that because my father is not there to show them to me or tell me the story behind it. So, you know, those are my pretty much my fondest memories. What's an example of a recipe gone awry? Baking. So... I'm going to tell you a secret. Anything that's baked here, my mom says she does it, but I really do it. You know, she's like, yes, but I'm Rosa. I'm the one that they expect me to, you know, I'm the one who cooks. Very bad at baking. She tries, never works out, never. So she'll, she'll, she's bad at following recipes when it comes to baking. She likes to, like, 
throw her own little uh, spin to the recipe. And I'm like, no, when it comes to baking, it has to be. So so she'll have, she'll have like, lopsided cakes. And so it goes yeah. bad. It goes really bad sometimes. <laughs> and how does it end up in terms of you all getting along after something like that goes wrong? We laugh. We laugh. I, I, I make fun of her sometimes, you know, and she laughs, and then she's like, you do it. <laughs> what about vacations when you get away? Are you trying to take a vacation from your family as well? Oh. Well, you can never take a vacation from your family. Never, never, never. So going away, I usually... I bring my phone or whatever, you know, because when you have a family business, it's you can't take a vacation. So you'd have to bring some of the work with you. And when you work with family, you're not allowed to not call. So they, you know, it's, it's, you go on vacation, but you still have to check in. Yeah. And usually when we do go on vacation, we never go together because someone has to work at all times. But it would be like my brother and I or my parents go with my brother or my sister. You know, we try to take turns. But. You're always working. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you manage holidays? I would imagine the same way. Or you close on major holidays like Christmas. We are closed on Christmas Day and Easter. Um, and every other holiday we are open. But like I said, I was raised in, in uh, when my parents had the wine shop. They bought it when I was three years old. And we worked every single holiday. And when you don't work on a holiday, it, it feels like it's not a holiday. So we kind of associate holidays and workings or working with holidays. What's your best advice for people? It sounds like you all get along pretty well. It sounds like laughter is a big part of getting along pretty well. Don't take it too seriously. Laughter and lots of wine working with family, yes. Um, I think you just have to listen to each other when you work together as a family. You just have to be patient and uh, just know that no one is better to work with than your family. Um, no one understands you better. No one has more patience for you than family. And, uh, you know, working with family is a great experience to spend more time with them and to uh, learn from my parents. You know, I learned a lot from them. What would you say is the greatest lesson that your parents have imparted on you? Have patience with each other. They work together their whole in- the, the whole entire. They've been married 40-something years, and they've worked. they never worked apart from each other. They always worked together. Uh, to work hard, not complain, although I'm still working on that one, and to manage your money well. That's what I learned from them. What's expected of the next generation, of your daughter, and do your siblings have kids that there are also expectations there? You know what? My parents never expected me to work with them, and uh, it was so so much fun to work with them. And we just did it. But the, the children... Uh, the, the younger generation, my sister has three kids and I have a daughter. My daughter wants to be a teacher. And uh, my sister has a son who's eight who loves to come to help out. His dream is to have a restaurant. And my brother wants to take over one day. So the children are, are exposed to this and they want to work here. Is that important to you to know that it will continue beyond you? Yes, it's very important because uh, you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in this place. So it's nice to know that, you know, other generations want to take over. Well, Monica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Monica Pachulo, along with her family, owns Tino's Deli on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Our next guest also works in a family business. Bob Sahadi's family owns the Middle Eastern grocery store Sahadi's on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. I recently paid him a visit. 
What a long history Sahadis has in New York City. More than a hundred years, am I correct? Well, if you go back to when it started, it was my father's uncle who started the business in 1895 down on Washington Street in an area they call Little Syria. And then my father branched off into his own business down on Washington Street sometime in the 30s. And when he arrived here on Atlantic Avenue, it was 1948. So we've been on this spot for 68 years. How has Sahadi's evolved over the years? Sahadi's used to be a very ethnic store, Middle Eastern, very friendly to Lebanese, Syrians, uh, and that, uh, that type of crowd. And it evolved. And nowadays, it's basically, we still have our Middle Eastern identity, but it's branched out into maybe what you call food for the millennials, however you want to uh, name it. And it's a good marriage because they... Uh, like Middle Eastern food, and, uh, and it's mix and match. I mean, when I grew up, uh, people didn't know what hummus was. To what do you attribute your longevity and your successful longevity, if I may add? Well, people like the idea that this is a family business. There's always somebody from the family uh, on staff here. It's never, you'll never find uh, a Saadi not, not in the building. Um, people come here to get good quality merchandise at fair prices. Um, they expect to buy an olive oil that might be $22, $23 in the city for $18 or so here. We try and, you know, we, we try and maintain a certain quality and a certain price level as best we can. We try and buy good brands that we can sell at reasonable prices, and people are happy to buy them that way. How many Sahadis do work here now? Well, my brother Charlie just semi-retired. He's sort of the uh, head honcho. Uh, he just retired this year, so he's been coming in once a week. He still shows his face. He's still interested. Uh, it's just got time that he should take it a little easier. There's myself. There's my brother's daughter, Christine, who is the next generation to take over, and her brother, Ron, who is also the next generation that will be taking over. Uh, and also, well, my, when my brother was here, his wife is also was with us, and she also comes in once a week also, so she's also an intricate part of this business um, and that's basically what you, what you got in, in family members. How would you say working with family day in and day out is different than working with other colleagues you're not related to? It's sometimes a slippery slope. I mean, you can't... Uh, I mean, you, you, you know everybody's working for a common good. You know everybody's working, but everybody doesn't do it the same way you want to do it. So sometimes you have to just try and, you know, let it work out. You can't just try and force everything to be done the way you want it done because it doesn't always work that way. So you really have to give and take quite a bit more with family members than perhaps you would with an employee who you would basically say, this is, you know, this is the way I'd like it done. And sometimes you have clashes. You really have to, it's, it's, sometimes you bite your tongue. It's not easy, but you know what? You know everybody's working to a common good and, uh, and everybody's trying to do the best job they can. So that's, it's, not, it's not always easy. I mean, this is unusual that we're in the third generation. It sometimes doesn't get passed even to a second generation. So, you know, it's not... Uh, you also can't have too big of an ego. Uh, I think that's part of the reason we were successful many years, because my brother and I were never big ego people. We never really had to stand up and say, I'm the boss, he's the boss. It didn't make a difference, and I think that's being passed on. I think anybody needs to stick their head up and say, I'm the head of everything. Everybody realizes we all have a role to play, and to make this business successful. How happy would your dad be knowing that the family business is still going strong in Brooklyn? I think he'd be very pleased, although I don't think, I think if he walked in this store, he would have no idea where he is. It's changed so much 
I often think, I says, I don't know, I, I wonder what he would think if he walked in the place. It's just such a different business than it was. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's a different world than, than, he, than he knew. But I guess he did, he'd adjust. I mean, he was an immigrant, and, uh, and he made it in this country. And uh, he would have figured it out. He would have figured it out. Though he wouldn't recognize it because there's been so much change, that change really equals your success. Without that change, who knows, right? He gave us a base. Without the base that he gave us, there would be nowhere to go. He, he built a good name. He built a reputation. And he passed it on to us. And that was quite a base to start with. So uh, a good deal of the credit goes there. Um, yeah, we took it to another level. We built it up. It got bigger. Uh, but, but without the start, I mean, when you start from nothing, you start with a business and you have no reputation, you have nothing, you have no credit, and then you build it. I mean, there's, there's the hard work. I mean, that's the, the people that set the, 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 the groundwork there that built the foundation. That was my father. Bob, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Sahadi's is a Middle Eastern grocery store in Brooklyn. Bob Sahadi is one of the owners. You can learn more about the Sahadis and their products at sahadis.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can find more of our shows online at wfuv.org slash cityscape or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Zalas. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listeners supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.